We just published in the last hour a flip-flop check on uh, Kevin McCarthy. The speaker had said on September 1st that he was definitely going to put it to a vote. And now it was September 12th yesterday. So, you know, 11 days later, uh, he starts the impeachment inquiry without a vote. So that's uh, flip-flop number one. He said he would do it one way and he didn't. Now he could in the future, he didn't rule out doing it at some point, but as you say, the math of it gets very tricky for him. He's got a narrow majority, he's got 18 members sitting in Biden districts who will be punished by the voters if they voted for a Biden impeachment inquiry. But the second barrel uh, is that in 2019, the very same Kevin McCarthy, he uh, criticized then Speaker Nancy Pelosi, his predecessor, for um, going forward on uh, the impeachment investigation of Trump without a vote. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. Joining us for this episode is Lou Jacobson. He's the senior correspondent with PolitiFact. Lou, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Of course. Thank you. So I have a really pressing question for you that I hope you'll uh, answer first. And that is, what is it like being a fact checker in this moment of divisive politics and rampant information manipulation? Yeah, it is um, um, quite the line of business to be in right now. I joined PolitiFact in 2009 after working for um, a couple of inside the Beltway pu publications covering politics and policy. Um, so I've been here something like 14, 15 years. Uh, and really over that time, um, uh, the centrality of um, fact-checking and what is truthful uh, and uh, you know, accuracy in politics um, has really increased year by year. We started in 2009, my first year there was the summer of death panels, uh, you know, over Obamacare. Um, and uh, uh, things kind of, you know, continued to peak. Uh, the Trump campaign in 2015 and 16, um, the Trump presidency, uh, um, uh, you know, it really um, has become, um, uh, uh, it's certainly grown into its own as a, subsection of journalism, um, but it's just become increasingly central to the way politics are practiced and discussed today, whether people are uh, telling the truth, shading the truth, or something worse than that. I, I wonder what concerns you have just as a follow-up about the ways in which generative AI tools are being increasingly used and what sort of challenges you think that might present, especially to journalists and fact checkers as we look to the 2024 election? Yeah, it, it, it definitely has upped the game on the misinformation front. Uh, you know, there are ways you can kind of, um, uh, e even if you're not a real technical expert, you know, some things, uh, if it's like a video or visual um, or sound, you know, it might uh, be sort of detectable as being off, as being kind of a little weird uh, and worth checking into. Uh, and then there are, I'm not an expert in this, but there are ways that you can do it from a more technical standpoint, looking at the background coding or whatever. Um, but this is a, a, you know, it's a problem. Uh, you know, it used to be that um, if we are fact-checking a claim that some candidate said something, you could look in uh, and look at the video from a few years ago at the campaign event that's being referenced. Um, and you know, it was pretty cut and dried that either they said what they're, uh, accused of saying or they didn't say it. Um, but now, uh, you know, it will be theoretically possible to like create 
um, from from scratch an AI, uh, you know, fake version of what happened. Um, and while there might be technical ways to get at that from a truth truth seeker's perspective, it's not easy. It, it, it just adds one additional layer of complication on our jobs. So we wanted to touch on uh, recent political news before we get into some of your fantastic new analyses on the crystal ball. Um, but this week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, asked the House to open an impeachment investigation into President Joe Biden, and you did some fact-checking um, on the statement. I'm wondering if you can just talk about, based on your reporting of this issue um, and what McCarthy said, can you talk a little bit about what is both most or and least likely to play out, um, especially given that an actual impeachment vote is going to be difficult given the slim majority that Republicans hold in the House and that 18 House Republicans represent districts that voted for Biden? Correct. Yeah. In fact, uh, just uh, about less than an hour ago, we published um, a flip-flop check. Uh, we, uh, you know, often do, uh, usually do, um, uh, claims that we rate as being either true, uh, on a six point scale down to pants on fire. Uh, we occasionally, not that often, but we occasionally do flip-flops where it's no flop, um, a half flip and a full flop, which is a complete flip-flop of what, what, uh, went before. And we just published in the last hour um, a flip-flop uh, check on uh, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, it was really almost a double-barreled flip-flop because the, the speaker had said on September 1st that he was definitely going to put it to a vote. Um, and now it was September 12th yesterday. So, you know, 11 days later, uh, he starts the impeachment inquiry without a vote. So that's uh, flip-flop number one. He said he would do it one way and he didn't. Now, if he could in the future, he didn't rule out doing it at some point, but as you say, the math of it gets very tricky uh, for him. He's got a narrow majority. Um, he would, he, he's got 18 members sitting in Biden districts who, who would be punished by the voters if they voted for a Biden impeachment inquiry. But the second barrel uh, is that in 2019, the very same Kevin McCarthy, uh, he uh, criticized then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi, his predecessor, for um, going forward on uh, the impeachment investigation of Trump without a vote. Now, eventually, I think it was like a week or two later, she did hold a vote and she won it. Um, but, uh, you know, McCarthy in 2019, only four years ago, was saying, you know, you must have a vote. Um, and uh, he was saying that up until a few days ago, but now he's decided to proceed without it. So that got a full flop. It seems like kind of like process arguments seem to be like the a classic place where politicians either lie or change their mind or whatever, like, because, you know, you just be there. There are certain sort of roles that you occupy when you're like in the minority versus in the majority. And like all of a sudden, all those process complaints when you're in the minority, this is true for both parties. I think they they just go for away sure. when you're the one who's actually controlling. Exactly. Everything. Yeah. No, I'm. Uh, we spend a lot of time on process and it, it's always a kind of a balance for us, you know, how much time do we spend checking process? How much time do we spend checking substance? Obviously substance matters, but also process matters too. And so, you know, there, there's no right answer to it. Uh, they, they are both to a certain extent important. Yeah. It also gets at a sort of a larger thing about American politics, which is that like so much of what we sort of think of as almost like rules are actually just norms. And so like, 
you're not quite constrained. Like I guess the, the classic example of that to me was the, uh, um, you know, the Senate Republicans not having a vote on Merrick Garland in 2016 when the, you know, when the Supreme Court seat came open, it was like, it wasn't, if, if it was an actual rule or a law, they couldn't do it, but because it was just a norm, they could, they could uh, get away with it. Um, yeah. And actually my, my feeling on, a, on that at the time, and I think this is an old up, um, is that, you know, McConnell, uh, who made the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, decision to go forward with, with, uh, confirming, um, uh, justice after he had done the opposite, basically at the end of the, on the Obama years, um, he, he had entire authority to do that. I mean, there, there's nothing that, that would stop him from doing that. It was just simply a power play. My, my concern is that, and we did a flip flop on this, actually, I think it may have been our last major flip flop check. Um, uh, my, my concern was, um, that like McConnell was, was, was sort of dressing up in, we must do this because it's the right and honorable thing to do. No, it was because they could do it and it was a power move and no one could stop them. And, you know, it could be done, but is it in so, uh, uh, you know, demanded by the constitution that he act that way? No, it's not. Lou, uh, I think by the time people listen to this, we'll have posted a, a new piece that you have for us in the Crystal Ball, your regular uh, uh, contributor for us, about uh, comparing uh, the presidential results from 2020 to the current um, makeup of state legislatures uh, in, in the country. And basically what you found, uh, and you did a similar piece for, uh, about this for U.S. House seats, was that um, the Republicans just have way more kind of excess seats. You know, They punch more above their weight. Um, in more uh, state legislative chambers uh, than than Democrats do, uh, you know, maybe if you, if you could talk about that a little bit, and then maybe like, why do you, you know, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, it's a little bit different dy- dynamics, I think, for the House excess seats that, that the GOP has gotten and the state legislative seats. Um, the uh, generally speaking, what I found is that um, uh, when we checked two years ago on this question, I did a column looking at the numbers, uh, and there was kind of a rough parody. Uh, the GOP had more, more excess seats they were able to squeeze out of Congress beyond the presidential vote, but it was pretty close. It was 32 to 28 for the Democrats. Um, but in that two-year period, which included redistricting, um, the GOP um, squeezed out a lot more seats, uh, and they now have a lead for the U.S. House uh, of 39 to 24 excess seats compared to the Democrats. Um, which is a pretty significant increase. And, you know, um, states like uh, Florida, uh, uh, where there is a very aggressive redistricting map, uh, you know, play, played a big role in that change. Um, uh, you know, of course, de- Democrats also have their states uh, uh, that are big. Um, you know, California ha- has a uh, 6.2 excess seats for Democrats. Illinois, Massachusetts uh, have uh, four and three, respectively. Um, uh, but in the U S house, my, my, my gut feeling is that a lot of this does have to do with how districts are drawn. I mean, the, the GOP has done a really good job, um, uh, um, in a self-interested way, um, of, um, getting a lot of excess seats in sort of mid-sized states like Iowa, Oklahoma, Utah, and Arkansas, um, which, uh, uh, give them about a seat and a half to almost two seats per, per state. 
Um, and once you have enough of those, that, that starts to add up and is a major part uh, of their um, advantage on the congressional level. Um, if you look at state legislative seats, uh, and I looked at both the state Senate and the state houses, um, uh, both, both parties do have some pretty big, uh, you know, numbers that are out of whack. Democrats have states like, you know, Hawaii, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Um, the GOP has, um, states like the Dakotas and Ohio, uh, depending on the chamber, uh, there's, there's some variation. Um, but unlike, well, I think for the congressional seats where gerrymandering, um, is a significant reason, um, uh, I don't think that is really what's explaining it, um, in a lot of the states. Um, especially when you're talking about, about some of the smaller states like the Dakotas, Wyoming, um, uh, and so forth. Um, I think it has more to do with a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of the minority party in these states has just completely lost its shot at winning any, any statewide races, presidential, Senate, uh, or large congressional seats. Once you start doing that, and also state executive offices like secretaries of state, uh, and state attorney generals where, where those were elected. Once a minority party starts losing the, the ability to win those marquee seats, they really start to crater as a party. Um, you can't recruit enough candidates to run in every district or even, even the competitive districts. Uh, you can't build a party infrastructure, um, uh, uh, and, and sort of adequately fund candidates. Uh, and so it becomes, um, a, a sort of race to a point where the majority party in those, those, those states controls all the levers of party of uh, power, excuse me. Um, and, uh, you know, why would anybody in their right mind, if they, if they get to a certain point of sort of majority, of a super majority in the legislature, why, why would anybody, uh, want to join in the minority party, which is such a minor factor? Uh, you know, even if you're kind of, kind of in the middle ideologically, uh, it's more, uh, it makes more sense for you to join the majority party, maybe try to push them a little bit toward, towards the center. Um, instead of joining a party that, that has no chance of controlling any major office in the state uh, or getting more than a fraction of the uh, state house or Senate seats. Lou, uh, you know, in reading your piece, uh, you know, it also it kind of reminded me how the um, how the Republicans used to be in the South like a generation or two ago in that even even in, in, in a lot of these states we're talking about are, in fact, trending Republican at the presidential level. But, you know, back then in like the 60s, 70s and 80s, it was like, oh, the, the Republicans are making some gains at the presidential level. But they essentially just had nothing going on in terms of a organization or anything in, um, you know, in, in, the, in the lower levels. And so it took a long time for the, you know, the Republicanism of the state presidential to sort of catch up to where they were at the, you know, at, 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 you know, to, to, for the, for the you know, state legislative uh, gains to materialize. And when you would already see the presidential ones, you know, and, and the, 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 the fact you've got so many sort of moribund, um, you know, state party organizations and whatnot, a lot of these states, I think that's an interesting piece of this, uh, um, this, this analysis that you, that, you know, you're talking about. Yeah. And actually, uh, I'm talking right now from, uh, West Virginia, Morgantown, where I teach a course every year, uh, at WVU. Uh, and this is a great example of that, uh, of that phenomenon. Um, I initially, uh, did a reporting trip here in, uh, I think it was 2002. Uh, at the time, Democrats, uh, you know, they, for the first time in 2000, Gore lost to Bush. It was the first Democratic loss in a long time, uh, uh, here at the presidential level. Um, 
And, you know, talking to people, uh, they were, they were saying that like, you know, uh, you know, because of the gun issue, the coal issue, you know, Democrats nationally long-term, we're not going to be, uh, doing so well in West Virginia, but they also said that there is, uh, you know, a lot of incumbency, a lot of, uh, you know, democratic party strength at the time, this is in 2002, uh, in a, in a place like West Virginia. So, um, while that transition was happening nationally, it, uh, you know, it took, uh, they, they said it's not going to be sort of overnight that the down ballot offices are going to change. Now, flash forward, uh, you've got, um, Donald Trump winning either his biggest or his second biggest margin here in 2016 and 2020. Um, uh, huge, um, uh, tilt, uh, of both chambers, uh, to, to the GOP, um, in the state legislature, the GOP, um, uh, either controls all the statewide offices, uh, except for Joe Manchin. The Democrats are still running candidates here, uh, obviously. Um, and of course, the big exception is Manchin, who's uh, got kind of kind of an interesting, you know, political re- resume. Uh, but um, uh, uh, you know, long long term, uh, you know, it took a long time for all those down ballot, um, uh, you know, incumbencies to end. Uh, a, a long time for for the party kind of interest. I'm oh, sorry, infrastructure imbalance to, to sort of shift. But now that it's shifted, it's going to be a long time, if ever, that the Democrats are going to be able to climb back in a place like West Virginia. And the, and the flip side of that is true for, for the GOP in certain states. I, I think your analysis for me also just is another sort of um, measurement tool to see the ways in which state legislatures have become uncompetitive. And the ways in which that might impact democracy writ large, um, you know, sort of the health of democracy relies on competitive elections. And, you know, as your analysis sort of shows, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing that, that further decline, both at the, um, especially at the, at the state legislative level, um, in terms of, uh, entrenched, um, um, parties on one side or the other, depending on the state. Um, and and for me, I often think about like what are the um, impacts of this on the electorate. And so, you know, while there are certainly implications for the parties and how they're organizing, um, there's also a matter of, of voters in terms of how they're feeling about whether or not they're being represented on the one hand, but on the other, you know, it's it's incredibly difficult when you see one party control in the state to think that uh, your 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 vote or your voice might matter. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, polarization. Um, has, has gone hand in hand in recent years with a, uh, lack of interest by voters in, uh, splitting their tickets. Um, and so you really are seeing, um, states, uh, you know, leanings go in one, one direction or the other. Um, where this could be a problem, um, I think is really illustrated in some of the abortion votes in the past year since, uh, Dobbs, um, where, uh, in most of the states uh, that, that had a ballot measure on, on the question of abortion in some fashion, um, most of them had, uh, you know, GOP excess seats in the legislature. Um, and this made, uh, made for super majorities in a lot of cases. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps passing laws or debating passing laws that were kind of out of tune with kind of where their voters were. The more excess seats you have beyond the kind of baseline for the presidential vote, the more dicey it is to pass, uh, uh, you know, legislation that is either further right or further left, as the case may be, in that state. 
um, and voters are able to, in the states that do have ballot measures, to, to sort of, you know, have a check and balance on that by saying, we don't want you to go too far on this issue. Um, but to the extent that through a combination of various factors, including gerrymandering, you, uh, uh, you know, may not have that voice to change the, uh, the like, na nature of the legislature, uh, even if you can vote your conscience in presidential races uh, or in statewide ballot measures. Uh, you know, great examples, Wisconsin right now, uh, um, which is very much in the news. Um, uh, I guess it was 11-point victory for the last uh, state Supreme uh, Justice um, earlier this year. Uh, so she, she's now, uh, you know, not, not even heard a case yet, but she's being threatened with impeachment because if, um, if the uh, court members vote as people think they will on a redistricting case, then the um, very heavily uh, tilting GOP legislature in that state, in what is normally a divided state, um, is, uh, uh, you know, it's going to, um, uh, it, it's going to thoroughly change how the politics of the state run. And, you know, uh, I think advocates of democracy would say that something closer to, uh, you know, a more even split in the legislature in a state like that would be s sensible, but we'll see how that plays out. Lou, last question. Uh, you're a contributor to the Almanac of American Politics, which people like us really like. I imagine people listening really like. Um, what is it like to, uh, to 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 work on that project, and I, which I know you've been uh, you've been part of uh, for, for many years? Yeah, uh, I've um, taken part in seven editions of the Almanac, going back to 2000, um, and uh, it's really one of my favorite, if not my my actual favorite things uh, to write. Um, I write the state overviews and the governor profiles. Um, so that's a total of a hundred chapters. Uh, and, uh, you know, we use a lot of reporting, um, that our researchers put together, that, uh, on, on those topics. Uh, and I also use a lot of my own reporting uh, that I've done and sort of re re purpose it for that. Um, it's perfect for me because I am somebody who really loves to, um, explore the intersection of geography and politics. Um, I have, uh, my goal has been to file a story for every state. Uh, I've filed, um, from 49 states. I still need Alaska, uh, hopefully next year, maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I just love being in different places and getting a feel for the culture and the politics. And, uh, while I haven't traveled as much in, uh, the most recent years as I did earlier before I had kids. Um, I still like to, I still try, try to travel a fair amount. Um, and, uh, it really helps me, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, since, since I'm based in Washington helps me, um, not become too sort of inside the beltway in terms of my thinking. I, I, I think that while there has been a sort of homogenization, uh, and nationalization of politics, um, uh, I do think that the regional differences matter. And that's, uh, 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 you know, along with my very loyal stable of, uh, sources in each state who I'm in constant contact with, uh, I really, um, enjoy be being able to keep in touch with, uh, different parts of the country and getting a sense of what uh, they're, they're thinking. Well, Lou Jacobson, senior correspondent at PolitiFact, thank you so much for joining us on Politics as Everything, and more importantly, for your impressive work uh, uh, reporting on the states of, of politics and doing the hard work of, of fact-checking 
uh, to keep us informed. Thanks, Lou. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.